Luke chapter 7, verses 24 to 35. Let me read the text. When the messengers of John, that's John the Baptist, had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet, this is the one whom it is written, about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all of the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. To what then shall I compare the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another, and they say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. So we sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. It's the word of God. Today we end the series on the justification of God. The justification of God. If you missed the first two parts and a little bit last week, um, you can still follow along. If you're visiting this morning in God's providence, he puts you here on a day when probably the most difficult topic in Christianity is being discussed from the pulpit. So welcome. <laughs> but praise God you're here this morning. Be edified. Be teachable. Very difficult doctrine. It's not like at the end of the lesson we're all going to be like... Got it. Nailed it. Good. Let's move on. It's the kind of doctrine that you wrestle and grapple with all the days of your life. And I believe those of us who are saved, who've placed our faith in Jesus Christ for our salvation, and we sit around the throne of God and sit around the great desk, as it were, as the master teacher teaches us for all eternity without that residual sin and our finite human mind getting in the way, we'll finally understand the mysteries of God. And it will be all the reason to glorify Him more and more. And so, for now we know in part, but then we'll know in full. But this is God's revelation to humanity. This is what we teach. We don't come up with human speculation and philosophies and theories. We preach the Word of God. We preach it clearly, even when we get to things that are difficult for us to understand. And as I said to the people at first service, 
What did you expect when you came to this God? When you stopped following the little gods, the puny gods who aren't gods at all, gods of our own imagination and understanding, when you finally met the God of the universe, the one who always was, who always is, and always will be, did you not expect that you would find things about him too wonderful for us to understand? And so we should expect difficult doctrines that are hard for us to wrap our minds around. For if we could wrap our minds around everything God has revealed to us, then we would be God. We would have no need of faith anymore. And so let's back up a little and talk about the problem of evil. We said everyone will have to deal with this at one point in your life, if not many points. If God is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-good and all-loving, then why is there evil, pain, and suffering in this world? Why does he allow his children to go through pain and suffering? And so, in part one, we said that there are some who try to solve the problem of evil by making God no longer all-powerful or all-knowing. Because in that way, he is still all-loving and he is let off the hook, so to speak, that he was either unable to intervene or he didn't know ahead of time, so he couldn't intervene. And for some people, somehow that salves their conscience. But now you're left with a God who is not God. He's just a little bit bigger version of us who don't know the future and don't have the power to stop evil. We can guess at the future and we can certainly organize our lives in such a way to better our chances of avoiding evil and we should help those who are in suffering in the midst of suffering, to alleviate that suffering the best we can. But this is not a picture of God. He is capable, he is able, he is powerful, and he's all-knowing. Last week in our discipleship class that meets after church at 3.30, we talked about how what's known as Reformed theology, this is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses on the door of the gate at Wittenberg. And what came out of Reformed theology is sola scriptura. Everything that we believe about God has to come from this book. Sola fide, that salvation is completely by faith. No works. No works contribute to our salvation. Sola Christus. By Christ alone, Christ accomplished everything on the cross. But also, sola gloria Deo, to God be the glory alone. And Reformed theology starts with the Bible and starts with what the Bible teaches about God before it tackles any other doctrines of the church. That it vigorously and unabashedly protects the character of God as revealed in the scriptures 
before it attempts to answer any other question doctrinally. You don't sacrifice God's omniscience and His omnipotence because you're struggling with God's providence in salvation and in the realm of pain and suffering. And every time you start to get off the path, you need to hit the reset button and go back to what do I know about God? When you find yourself lost, you find yourself depressed, you find yourself anxious, the solution isn't to diminish God, but go back to the last place you knew you were standing on solid ground. God is good. God is perfect. God is just. God is loving. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. And now I can move forward from there. You don't diminish God in order to solve other problems down the road. That is not solving the problem. In week two, then, we looked at the love of God. If those two parts of the equation we can't touch then maybe the problem is with the love of God. Maybe he's not loving, but we know God is love. He's the embodiment of love. There would be no love if there was no God. So the problem is we have an inadequate view of love. We have an inadequate view of love, and we use the human analogy of a parent who would inflict pain on his or her own child, in order to accomplish something loving on behalf of the child. You discipline your children and inflict pain temporarily to keep them from greater folly as they get older. Or you take your child to the doctor and have your child vaccinated. A pinprick now versus smallpox later. Right? And so we understand on a human level that loving people can, in fact, use pain and suffering for a greater purpose. And if we can understand that on a human level, how much more does our infinite, all-wise God know what we need for life and godliness? I have learned so much and grown so much through suffering. I wish it weren't the case. But I, like you, am thick-headed and hard-hearted. And your children are that way, too. We could do this the easy way, or we could do it the hard way. And you beg and plead, and it's like, all right, I guess we're doing it the hard way. And we, we get all... I can't believe they're like this. And you're like, well, what were you like when you were a child? You had to learn the hard way too. And I guess we think as parents that if I just parented perfectly, we'd avoid such things. And as we age and mature as parents, we realize maybe my parents weren't as bad of parents as I thought. God has given us the means of grace by which to help point our children's hearts in the right direction, but at the end of the day, we cannot change a heart. 
You cannot force someone to believe and think and desire the right things. You can teach, you can implore, you can model, you can discipline, but at the end of the day, only God can change a human heart. Amen? And we're, we believe that, and we affirm it, and everyone said amen until we get to the topic of salvation. And then we have a problem with this. Because if God has the power to change the human heart, and only He has the power to change a human heart, then we wonder, why doesn't He change everybody's heart? And so we struggle with the fairness of God. It doesn't seem fair. And so the universalist goes outside the pages of Scripture and says, at the end of the age, God will eventually change everybody's heart. And that's fair. And yet you cannot find evidence for that teaching anywhere in the pages of Scripture. And so we said, in the same way that maybe we have an inadequate view of God's love, perhaps we also have an inadequate view of God's fairness. In fact, the Bible speaks of God's justice and His righteousness, not fairness. Fairness is a concept of the fallen human mind. And we see this in our children. Picking on the kids today. Hey, we were all children, children. And even as an adult, I act very childish sometimes when I say, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. And the more difficult the circumstances, the more likely I am to say that's not fair. Now, a child will say that's not fair when they get the smaller cookie. And the stakes don't get any higher than the eternal destiny of our souls. And so we're apt to say that's not fair. If we have any questions about this at all, Jesus gives us the parable of the day laborers. Many were waiting to work in the vineyard that day, but only some were chosen. And when they were chosen, they were told, for a day's work you'll be paid a denarius, which was an extremely generous wage for a day's work. Extremely generous. And as the day progresses, the vineyard owner calls in more and more workers. In fact, the last group comes in an hour before the end of the day. And they get to work in the cool of the day. And then the owner begins to repay the workers their denarius. And they start with the group that worked the least. And the rest of the group said, whoa, they get a denarius? We must be getting more. But everyone got a denarius, and they said, that's not fair. And they judged the vineyard owner as unjust. And Jesus says, in essence, my vineyard. You could have said no to the offer.
And the obvious application of the parable is in the realm of salvation. I've been evangelizing people before, and they got hung up on the question of, so let me get this straight. Serial rapist in prison for life repents and receives Jesus. Heaven? If it's authentic repentance, yes. Well, do they get a lesser heaven? No, there is no lesser heaven. Well, surely they must go to an intermediate place and have to pay off some of those sins. No purgatory. Won't find it anywhere taught in the Bible. But it seems fair. That doesn't seem right. Thief on the cross. Deathbed conversion. Today you will be with me in paradise. And the other thief could have had the same deal. And he mocked and scorned Jesus. So we're going to look at today the justice of God, not the fairness of God. The passage that we're on opens with Jesus answering the messengers of John. John was wondering if Jesus really was the chosen one because things weren't unfolding the way John thought they would unfold. And we said, hey, we all have doubts at times. Even John the Baptist, who Jesus said is the greatest man born of women. And he sends the word back to John. Tell John that the lame are healed and the blind have sight and the dead are raised. In other words, you got the right Messiah. You don't need to look for another. And we know the rest of the story. John was eventually beheaded. The crowd was wondering, and Jesus knew what was on their hearts. If John is really a prophet of God and is speaking with authority, then why do the other people who speak on behalf of God with authority, the Pharisees, the scribes, Sadducees, why didn't they agree with John and get baptized? Which authority do we listen to? Who is really speaking for God? Isn't that the big question? This world is filled with people who claim to be speaking on behalf of God. Every major cult has their prophets, their false prophets. Every other religion has their holy book that is supposed to be from God. But who is really speaking for God? Who do we listen to? And all the other religions are saying basically the same thing. If you're good enough, you can earn heaven. But John was saying, everyone must repent. Everyone. And so he's in jail, and the people are wondering, should we listen to John? Is Jesus really the Messiah? 
Is this the chosen one? Is this the one we should listen to? And Jesus says, well, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken in the wind, shaken by the wind, meaning he's changing his doctrine based on popular opinion of the day. He's changing his teaching based on the response of the crowd. Does that sound like any of the faithful Old Testament prophets? No. No. There were plenty of false prophets that were shaken by the wind. Right? How does Paul describe it in Timothy to Timothy? That the day is coming when people will not stand for sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll heap up for themselves false teachers. But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing, uh, expensive clothing. John wore the uh, goat hair and ate the locusts and wild honey and didn't shave. He had taken the Nazarite vow. And he, and he was out in the wilderness of all places. He wasn't hanging out in the synagogues. He wasn't at the temple. He wasn't friends with the elite. He wasn't friends with the academic community. He wasn't friends with the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious body of Israel. And Jesus says, those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. And the, uh, historically, those in royal palaces don't keep truth speakers around. In fact, that's why John was in prison, because he called Herod out on adultery, and Herod didn't like it, and had him in prison. But what did you really go out to see? A prophet. Yes. I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. Wow, how could John be more than a prophet? Because he's the prophet that the prophets prophesied about. He's the prophet the prophets prophesied about. The one who would make a straight path for Messiah. The last prophet that would come before Jesus came. And remember, there was no prophetic word for 400 years. And then on the scene bursts this prophet. And he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he points to Jesus as the chosen one, the Messiah. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Jesus affirming John indeed is a prophet from God. In fact, he goes on to say, and if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah, whom the Old Testament predicted would come back. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And just as Elijah was persecuted by King Ahab and Jezebel, so too is John being persecuted by the king. Remember Herod claimed to be king of the Jews? In fact, Jesus said, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Those born in the natural way, Jesus' conception was supernatural. 
which makes his birth different than all other births. But among those, all the rest of us, there is no one greater than John. And, and then he says this, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than, than he. How is that possible? What, is, what does Jesus mean? Beloved, that's us. If you are in the kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ, according to Jesus, in some real way, you're greater than John. What was John? He was a prophet. What was his role? To point people to Jesus. But John was greater than all the other prophets who came before him because he actually got to see who the Messiah was. Ever since Genesis 3.15, when God promised that from the woman's seed, one would come that would crush Satan's head, though Satan would only bruise his heel. And throughout the whole Old Testament, the question in who, who's the seed? Who's the seed? Who's the one? John got to know who the one was. But John didn't get to see him die and be resurrected. We, on this side of the cross, got to be part of something John didn't get to see. And so when we preach Christ we can give the whole story. Yes, repent from sins and trust God and throw yourself on the mercy of God. And the way you throw yourself on the mercy of God is through faith in Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection. We are privileged people, beloved. New Testament saints. The Old Testament saints put their faith in what they didn't know yet. They just knew they needed God to be merciful. And we now know what the instrument of God's mercy is. And it's a person. And he's wonderful. Luke seven twenty nine. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Here's where we run into our conundrum. The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves. So is the Bible saying that man can consciously reject the purposes of God. I thought he was sovereign. Well, this this is the dilemma. This is the dilemma. And the biblical solution to the dilemma is this. That the Bible clearly teaches that God has two wills. He has a sovereign will, which no one or no thing can thwart. But he also has a moral will for our lives, a moral will. And we can disobey God's moral will. People struggle with this all the time. Nathan was just teaching on this the last uh, two discipleship classes ago, especially in the context of having to make a decision. And we get all discombobulated as Christians because we don't want to make a decision because it might be outside the sovereign will of God. Beloved, 
whatever happens in your life is the sovereign will of God. If it happened, you know it's the sovereign will of God. What you need to be concerned with is the moral will of God. So people say, I'm trying to discern the will of God for my life, but I just don't know what it is. And I can tell you, I know what God's will is for your life. And you're like, great, tell me which college to go to. Tell me who to marry. Tell me which job to take. Tell me how to spend my money, pastor. Oh, I can't tell you those things. I thought you, you, t- you just said that you could tell me God's will for my life. I can. I can tell you his moral will for your life. His moral will for your life. That you would repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That you would read your Bible. Well, which chapter should I read? All of them. Every day? Well, no. Well, how do I know which ones to read today? Well, whichever ones you decide to read is the sovereign will of God for your life. Well, I want more than that. I can't give you more than that. And so, while we're trying to figure out the sovereign will of God, we inadvertently disobey God in His moral will. Well, I don't know who to evangelize. There's seven billion people on the planet. Well, go and evangelize someone. Well, I don't know if that was God's will. If, if you do it, it's God's will. Go, therefore, and make disciples of, all, disciples of all nations. Well, which ones? Well, in this church, we're deciding to go to the nations that haven't heard the gospel yet. We picked a strategy, and we're running with it. And we think we're inside the moral will of God because the Bible says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. But I don't think we can hit every nation just as this body. But praise God, there's more than one local body of believers. We'll trust God for the hitting all the nations. Boy, doesn't that free you up? Focus on the moral will of God, and the sovereign will of God takes care of itself. It's not that there's some secret will for your life that if you don't find out what it is, you'll never find happiness. There's a moral will and a sovereign will. So God's moral will for the Pharisees and the lawyers is that they receive and acknowledge John the Baptist's message as truth from God and that they be baptized with the baptism of repentance and faith. But they rejected the moral will of God for themselves. They rejected God's purpose for themselves. But guess what? By rejecting this moral will of God, they actually walked right into the sovereign purpose of God for their lives. So you're saying God wanted them to reject John's message? Yes. And God also wanted them to receive God's message. One was God's sovereign will, one was God's moral will, and they're not contradictory at all. They seem contradictory to us, Because um, our minds are small. And so we hold these things in tension and we believe them by faith. God who's outside of time is never asking, well, which came first? To God, everything happens simultaneously. I don't understand that. 
that's not my reality. That's not how I live. That's not how you live. But that's how God lives. So, when the Bible says that they justified God, the NAS, the New American Standard, says they acknowledged God's justice. But the word in the Greek is just the verb justified. And I guess the NAS translators didn't want you to get the impression that what the Bible is saying is that the people said, all right, we believe that God made a good decision. We'll justify him. No, no, we don't justify God. He justifies us. What it means is, and so they kind of added some words in the English, which the NAS usually doesn't do. They try to go word for word, but I guess they felt this was too important. And so they put in some commentary there, and they said they acknowledged God's justice. How did they acknowledge God's justice? When John said, all of you need to repent because you're sinners, they said, God is right. We're sinners. We need to repent. And the act of baptism was the proof that vindicated God's judgment. Because you could say, I acknowledge God without really acknowledging Him. The getting baptized was vindicating. That's the word we like to use. Vindicated God's message. So let's cut over for a second to, to Romans 3. In, in Romans 1 and 2, Paul's laying the case that all men are under the wrath of God. All people deserve God's wrath. God has revealed truth to us, and man has suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. And he gets to chapter 2, and he says, no difference between Gentile and Jew. And you have to understand, this is where the Pharisees and the lawyers or the scribes were having problems. Let me remind you from Luke chapter 3, what John the Baptist said to the Pharisees and scribes. He says, so he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance do not begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham for our father, right? God made a covenant with Abraham. We're Israel. We're God's chosen people. We're saved. We don't need to repent. We don't need to be baptized. We get into heaven a different way. We get in through our heritage. And John says, don't say, but we're Abraham's children. For I say to you that from one of these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. And he's out in the wilderness, so there's stones everywhere. Like the message is, look, don't think you're special. I'll start a new nation from one of these stones. It had nothing to do with you guys. Moses records God's words in Deuteronomy. I didn't choose you because you were more numerous 
or you were the greatest nation. In fact, they, they were in slavery eventually to Egypt, right? They had to be rescued. No, I had mercy on you because I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's God's prerogative to decide who he'll have mercy on. If you want fairness, then we all go to hell. Being blunt. If you want fairness, we all deserve hell. The fact that God chooses anyone for mercy is amazing. And beyond me. And the more you understand your sinfulness and the more you understand God's holiness, the more amazing His grace is. But when we struggle with the fairness of God, it's usually because we see ourselves as not that bad. And so the Hitlers of the world, oh sure, they deserve hell. But what about my unsaved uncle or aunt or brother or sister They're pretty decent people. But they reject the gospel. And you should struggle with that. If you ever get to a place in your life where you're like, well, tough. Stinks to be you. Something is seriously wrong with your heart if that's your attitude. You should weep for the lost. Hell is a terrible, terrible thing. But you can't just explain it away. The Bible clearly teaches it. And so we find ourselves back to that question. It hardly seems fair that God would have mercy on some but not others. And so the universalist says, I know, in the end, God will just have mercy on everyone. And everyone will be saved. And the Bible does not teach it. You say, well, what about the verse that says God desires all men to be saved? That's the moral will of God. Hey, I want all of you to repent. That is the right thing to do. That's the moral thing to do. But it doesn't negate the sovereign will of God. The Bible clearly teaches not all will be saved. And so, in Romans 3, then Paul says, well, what advantage then has the Jew? It doesn't, it doesn't seem like you're any better off being Jewish or Gentile, if, if that's the rules. What is the benefit of circumcision? That's the, the sign of the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. And Paul says, oh, great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They had the Old Testament scriptures. They had more revelation than Gentiles. So what then? If some did not believe, so if some Jews don't believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? In other words, if God made a covenant with Israel, but some refused to believe, and they don't get heaven because of their unbelief, does somehow that cancel out the righteousness of God? And what does Paul say? May it never be. In the strongest possible terms, Paul rebukes even having such an accusation against God. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And he quotes from Psalm 51, which is a psalm that King David, the man after God's own heart, 
the first true king of Israel. The throne that Jesus reigns from is called the throne of David. This is how important David is to God. And yet we know David failed miserably. And he writes Psalm 51 and he says, Have mercy on me, O God. He doesn't say, Well, you anointed me king and so I'm good. No, he, he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Not according to what I deserve, according to your chesed love, your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. This is a man who understood his sinfulness. This sounds like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, who's standing in the throne room of God, crumples. Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm unraveling. Any goodness I thought I had compared to God's righteousness is but dirty, filthy rags. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And then God cleanses his lips with a coal from the altar. And says, who shall I send? And then Isaiah says, send me. And then he tells Isaiah, you're going to go preach to a bunch of people, and not one of them is going to listen. Because I am going to blind their eyes and stop up their ears. Whoa. So they're all going to reject Isaiah's message. Yes, so it's their fault. Yes. But God said, they're not going to believe his message because I'm going to blind them and I'm going to stop up their ears. Wait a minute then. Isn't that God's fault that they won't believe? Watch it. You see the dilemma. So you want me to break the tension, and I can't. I can't biblically break the tension. You hold the two things in tension by faith because it's clearly what the Bible teaches. May God be justified in his words and prevail when you are judged. And we shouldn't judge God. Who are we to judge God? What happens if you find God unrighteous? Then what? Who's left in the universe that's righteous? Who's going to right all wrong? Who's going to be the final judge of all the world? And so you go back, like we said to the beginning, what do we know about God? I know this is a hard teaching over here, but what do you know about God? He alone is righteous. Go back to square one. And then work your way forward from there. And when you run into one of these dilemmas in the Bible, you don't go, well, that doesn't sound righteous. Let me change what the Bible says so that God will appear righteous. Beloved, he he doesn't need you to do that. He doesn't need you to justify him. God has always justified our sense of fairness is never the standard. Paul goes on to say in Romans 3, 5, he knows you're going to have this problem. God knows we were all going to have this problem with this teaching. He, 
He knew it would happen, and he gave us the answer. And the way he gives us the answer is by asking out loud the same questions you and I are asking. Paul says, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? And he says, hey, by the way, I'm speaking in human terms here. This, I'm, pre, I'm playing the role of the skeptic who goes, well, well, wait a minute. If God ordained that there be people who are unrighteous, which is everyone, so that our unrighteousness would demonstrate just how righteous God really is, how is that fair then that God judges the unrighteous? If God set it up that way. And God does it that way. We understand. When you went to buy your wife that engagement ring, they put that diamond on what? A piece of black felt. Because it makes that which is pure look even more dazzling. So God allowed unrighteousness in the world so we would go, wow, this world's a mess. It's filled with filth and selfishness and sinfulness and hatred and murder. And then the perfect one comes along and compared to all that, wow, look at Jesus. Oh. And any of us who dared to say, you know, compared to the world, I think I'm a pretty good person next to Jesus. There's no comparison. Paul says in Romans 5, 8, that another reason God allows this is so that he can demonstrate his love. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. If, if It's easy to love good people. Right? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, even, even unbelievers love the people who are easy to love. Can you love your enemies? So if there were no enemies, God couldn't demonstrate that kind of love. So he ordained that there would be enemies. You say, well, yeah, that's why there's Hitlers. No, beloved, we're the enemies. Before Christ, we were the enemies. Before Christ. In Christ, Jesus calls us friends. In Romans 9.15, God said, or Paul reveals from God that he allowed unrighteousness and sin and wickedness in the world to display his mercy. How would we ever know mercy if we didn't need mercy? And so God had to ordain evil, which deserved to be punished, so he could display his attribute of mercy. And then in Romans 9.22, the hardest one of all for us to deal with, God ordained that there would be some who would not repent in order to demonstrate his patience and long-suffering and his wrath, his righteous wrath. And this is just. And you say, well, but, but it still doesn't seem fair that God only has mercy on some. I know we're stuck on fair. We're, we're just... It's so part of our fallenness that it's hard to expunge it out of our attitudes. But God anticipates this. Romans 9.14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? There's unfairness. 
but there's no injustice. May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. God doesn't look down and go, hey, that one's trying really hard. I know he's never going to be perfect, but he is trying so much harder than this person. I'll have mercy on this one. Beloved, I make my boast in Christ. I'm not going to tell you my laundry list of sins of who I was before I met Christ. It's certainly not a disqualifier from the pulpit, but I don't want to distract from the message. But I tell you, there was nothing about me at all that would make God go, yeah, I'll pick that one. To, to the world and those around me, I looked pretty good, but if they knew my heart of hearts, it was all a sham. And I was always afraid every day that sooner or later somebody was going to find out who I really was on the inside. And the scripture God used to convert me was Romans 6, 9. And following to where it gets to, but such were some of you, but you were washed. And I was like, oh God, I want to be as such were some of you. I've been trying to clean up my act and run from my past and I can't outrun my past. It's who I am. It's what I did. And it keeps catching up to me. The same old stupid sins. And I'd move from job to job and move, we'd move from place to place and start over scratch with people who don't really know me. But if your nature doesn't change, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be that same old hypocrite. And God converted me that day and brought me into the kingdom and gave me eyes to see and ears to hear. And I've been a new creation ever since. And he who began a good work in me will finish it until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen? And so... I work as if it all depends on me, but I pray as if it all depends on God, and I keep human responsibility and God's sovereignty in tension. I don't sit around and go, well, if, if it's all God, I'll just be on cruise control. <laughs> cruise control never works out well for my sanctification. How about you? And yet in those moments when I'm starting to feel a little too good about my human efforts... There's the scriptures to remind me. It's all grace. In fact, we sang it in one of the songs this morning. That power to overcome sin can't come from me. And so, it just doesn't seem fair that God judges those who, wait, is it won't repent or can't repent? That's the question, right? Is it that they won't repent or that they can't repent? Let's see hands for won't repent. Come on, let's do this. What? Won't repent. It's their fault. They won't repent. They heard the gospel. You heard the gospel. They won't repent. Hands for can't repent. Who put their hand up for both? You've got the scriptural answer. 
can't repent, won't repent. And God is right to judge us if we won't repent. And yet when you're in the family of God, and God becomes your father, and he puts you on your knee, and he says, let me whisper something in your ear. I changed your heart. Now, I believed, yet that's what it looked like on human terms. But by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God so that no man may boast. Really? Yeah, you really thought you could believe on your own? Stubborn, hard-hearted, wicked? Want to be your own God? Really, you're going to give all that up on your own? So Paul says, well, then you will say to me, then why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Let me give you a human analogy that's, that's helped me. We, we got lots of parents in here, or people who were formerly parents. Have you ever set your kids up for failure on purpose? You put out the candy dish and you said, don't touch. And you know they're going to they're gonna take the candy. The minute you leave the room. Oh, this kid might last a little longer than this kid, but eventually, if it's the right kind of candy... And then you punished them for doing it. And do you find fault in yourself? Well, if you knew they were going to fail, then why would you set them up for failure and then punish them? That's not fair. You don't ever chastise yourself for punishing your children for disobedience. In fact, you were like, I'm going to use this as a teachable moment. If you're a good gospel-centered parent, Maybe you were just like, I'm putting these out for the company coming over, and you better not touch these candies. And then you get all, like, fly off the handle when they eat the candies. Like, hello, what did you think was going to happen? But you weren't thinking about their hearts. You were just thinking about putting candy out for the guests. And so the good parent disciplines his child, but also uses love. You put the fear of the Lord in them, but the kindness of the Lord also leads us to repentance, right? It's both. It's both. And at the end of the day, you need to understand as parents that your children desiring the right thing to do for the right reason can only be accomplished by God's mercy and grace in their life. Oh, you can get them to not take the candy out of fear of punishment or bribery. Hey, if you don't take the candy and put a gold star... And when you get 10 stars, and then you get the bowl of, bowl of candy. You know, they're like, so now it's just delayed gratification. And, and those things we have to do when our kids are young. Because it's all we've got in the toolbox. But you know that the only way their heart's changing is you on your knees. Praying for them. And somehow God works through our prayers to change the human heart.
when we start talking about Calvinists versus Arminian, I cringe. Like, I think Jacob Arminius and John Calvin roll over in their graves every time somebody uses those labels. They would both say, I'm a Christian. They had different views on this. Jacob Arminius struggled so much with it that he came up with a system that we call Arminianism. And the system was that God gives enough grace. He, calls, he called it, uh, or some have called it prevenient grace. There's enough grace now that you have the ability to make the right choice. And those who make the right choice go to heaven and those who make the wrong choice are punished in hell. In the biblical view, which we sometimes call Calvinism, is you need grace, period, to make the right choice. It's not that God made it available for you to make the right choice. He, you were dead. He made you alive. You were blind. He made you see. Well, did I still make a real choice? Yes, it's a real, authentic choice. How does that work? It's a mystery. But don't try to untie the knot. Then your faith will fall, fall apart eventually. So, listen to what Jesus says to the Pharisees. Right? He said, what shall I compare the men of this generation to? You're like children. You're like brats. Hey, we played a dirge for you, but you wouldn't weep. Yeah, I, I don't want to weep. I want to dance. So we played the flute for you, but you wouldn't dance. You have an answer for everything. John came and played the dirge. Weep of your sins. Repent in dust and ashes. Oh, he's got a demon. He's crazy. We don't need to repent. We're Abraham's children. But here's the crazy thing. Those very same Pharisees who said they were going to heaven because they were Abraham's children looked at other Abraham's children, prostitutes, tax collectors, and run-of-the-mill sinners, and said, yeah, but they're not going. Well, why not? Because they're not working hard enough. Well, which is it? Is it by your heritage or is it by your works? Yes. And they were filled with pride. And had no compassion for those being crushed under the weight of the law that was impossible to keep. And he says, but wisdom will be vindicated by her children. What does that mean? It's a, it's a little proverb. It makes sense. Hey, this is how I'm going to parent my children. Oh yeah, well this is how I'm going to parent my children. Oh, which, which one's better? Well, you do it your way and I'll do it my way and wisdom will be vindicated by her children. So Jesus is like, you try to get into heaven your way, I'm offering grace. Wisdom will be vindicated by her children. That's a hard lesson to learn the long way, the hard, you know, the hard way. You understand what the implications are. If the Pharisees are going to go, okay, we'll try getting in by our works, not going to turn out well for them at all. And it won't turn out well for you. Some of you put your faith in Christ out of fear of judgment and, and later discovered his love. So you, you came through that side of the coin. Others of you put your faith in Christ out of response to his love, 
And I hope you've learned to properly fear him. Because you, you need both. But there are some in this room who are still skeptical. You like this idea of grace, but your pride tells you, I got a problem with other people getting to, into heaven who haven't worked very hard. You're like the older brother and the prodigal son. I'm not going into the party. Because I've worked really hard at this being good. And it hardly seems fair to me that everybody gets the same prize. The God of the Bible doesn't match your ideas about fairness. But I'm telling you this morning, God is just. And he's good. And he's loving. And he's given you a free gift. And you need to repent and receive that gift by faith. And then when you receive that gift, instead of bragging about your faith, give God all the glory. Give him all the glory. It was all Christ. Don't be like the Pharisees who were holding out to be justified in their own eyes. If you look at Matthew's account of the very same story, he adds a little bit at the end. Matthew does. Fascinating. Matthew 11. After Jesus says wisdom is vindicated by her children, although Matthew says wisdom is vindicated by her deeds, it says, And he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Wow. You rejected the miracles of Christ. You rejected the message of Christ. You are going to be judged. Woe to you. So, well, that makes sense. They rejected. They deserved that. But then he turns around and says this, and it will be up on the screen. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Wait, I thought they rejected it on their own. Yes, they did. They're guilty. But here we see the providence of God blinding their eyes. Oh, wait, now isn't God at fault for their rejection? May it never be. And if that didn't get to you, wait for this. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. God chooses. He elects some for salvation. Clearly taught. And we're to exalt God for everything he teaches, even when it doesn't make sense. 
And then he balances it out with this. So come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He doesn't say, if you're the elect, come to me. He invites all, and the elect come. You don't, you don't witness to people and say, hey, you need to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved if you're the elect. It's not how we're told to evangelize. It, we know it's what's going on behind the scenes in ways that we can't fully comprehend. So we evangelize like an Arminian, but on our knees we pray like Calvinists. You don't say, Lord, that person I just shared the gospel with, use the cleverness of my speech to convert them to Christ. You say, oh God, change their heart. Don't let my feeble attempt at preaching the word be the defining characteristic of whether or not someone comes to faith. You, you cry out on your knees the same way everyone does. Oh God, change their heart. Oh God, change my heart. You don't have to to believe this doctrine to be saved. This is not a doctrine that keeps you out of the kingdom. But I would warn you in this, why would you want to take some doctrines of the Bible and because they make you uncomfortable, put them in a special room in your heart where you say, I don't really want to deal with these. If it's in the Bible, trust God that it will be edifying to you. You don't have to find another church if you're like, I, I, I still can't do this election thing. Oh, he's not going to preach on election, is he? I'm out of here. No, you are welcome here. You are not a second-class Christian. You're not a second-class citizen. In fact, the Southern Baptist Convention is pretty 50-50 split on this doctrine. Good and godly men disagree. Good and godly women disagree. And really, the disagreement is, is less than what sinful human emotions often reveal. We're all saying that we don't completely understand everything God does in salvation. That, that's what we need to humbly admit. Praise, praise Jesus. Jesus saves sinners. We're unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't let this be a divider. And you say, then why are you preaching it? Because it's in the Bible. I don't know how more clear I can make it. Oh, you can find me a verse here or there that's a proof text for the other position, but it's just not going to hold water. At the end of the day, the other argument is purely from human reason and logic and uncomfortableness. This is the one that's clearly taught. And so, I am compelled by my calling to preach the whole counsel of God. And I won't apologize for it at all. In fact, I embrace it. I don't fully understand it, but I teach it. I do understand, though, there's great benefits. Stop focusing on the unfairness and start focusing on the benefits that come from this doctrine. It keeps us humble. And I know there's been Calvinists who aren't humble. That's sad. How can you brag that you were chosen when you were chosen in spite of you? 
If anything, you were chosen because you were going to make a better example of God's mercy. You are a really filthy chamber pot. Yeah, I was the worst of the worst. Yeah, you can't brag about that at all. Uh, number two, it keeps us trusting God for everything. If, if by my own cleverness I fought my way into the kingdom, then by my own stupidity I'll think my way right out of it. I am so thankful the Bible says that whoever the Father chooses, no one can pluck you from the Father's hand. And so it gives me assurance of my salvation. It doesn't depend on me. It depends on God. And it gives me hope, actually more hope than the Arminian position for current unbelievers. It doesn't depend on the cleverness of my gospel presentation. It, and yet I will continue to present the gospel and I will be, you know, I will try again and again and again and again. I'm not going to try once and go, well, I guess they're not elect. God's mercy in my life and his love compels me to trust and obey. And I'm sure if you put your mind to it this week, God... The Holy Spirit will show you many other reasons to exalt in this doctrine and not be afraid of it. Thank you for giving me some extra time uh, this morning, but I think it would be wonderful if we closed singing that last hymn and pay attention to the lyrics and see how Scripture-saturated they are about the grace of God in our lives. Jesus is my